The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, please open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 8. The book of Acts, chapter 8. As we continue our series through the book of Acts, uh, we are in chapter 8 this morning, Empowered to Scatter. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, and I'm going to read the first four verses. Uh, So Acts, chapter 8. Verses 1 through 4, and I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning in the name of Jesus to worship our risen King, the Lord of this universe, the Savior of the world. Lord, as we've already seen, Psalm 2, even when the nations rage, even when leaders plot to overthrow Your purposes, God, You sit in the heavens and laugh. For no one No one can thwart your purposes. Lord, I pray this morning that you would comfort us by that truth through the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1949, the Communist Party took control of China's government, and the Communist Party has ruled and and reigned over the government in China ever since that time. So from 1949 to the present day, China has been a communist nation. And the first thing that the new communist government did was they began to rid the country of religion, especially of Christianity. And so by... By, in that first year, they expelled all Christian missionaries from China. They all had to leave. They all had to get out. At that time, 1949, there were only about 700,000 Christians in China, by our best guess. About 1% of the Chinese population were Christians. Today, after all that, 
Over 70 years later, some estimate that there are now over 100 million Christians in China. As, many, as much as 7% of the population. That doesn't make any sense. How do you account for the church exploding in growth when the government for 70 years has been trying to stop that very thing from happening? here's what happened. As soon as the Western missionaries were forced to leave China, those 700,000 Christians who had been reached by them realized that the only way the mission was going to go forward was for them to step up and begin planting churches and preaching the gospel. And so what happened is when the, lay le- when the missionaries were forced to leave, lay leaders in the church were forced to step up into leadership, and the result of that is that the church has been exploding in growth. There's more leaders than there ever was before. Meanwhile, those missionaries who were expelled from China went to other Asian nations and began preaching the gospel in new places, and the gospel began to grow in all kinds of other places all over the globe. The Chinese Communist Party's policy backfired. It did not eliminate Christianity from China. In fact, it led to more Christians in China. It led to the growth of the church. I think it's important, church, that we celebrate stories like that because it is a reminder to us that there is only one who is writing history. And His name is Jesus Christ. That God is ultimately the author of history. History is not purposeless. History is going somewhere. God is writing a story and it centers upon Jesus Christ. And no one is ever going to get in the way of that story coming to fruition. That's really important. You see, what we learn when we read stories like that is that it's not just that the actions of men can't stop God's purposes, it's that God actually uses those feeble attempts to stop His purposes to actually accomplish His purposes. Think about that. It's not just that you can't stop God from doing what He wants to do. It's that God will take your attempt to stop Him from doing what He wants to do, and He will use it to do what He was going to do anyway. That's the God that we gather to worship here, church, every single Sunday. That's the God that we begin learning about all the way back into Genesis chapter 50. Do you remember that story? Genesis chapter 50, if it doesn't come right to your mind, that's okay, I'll remind you. You remember Joseph was sold by his brothers, left for dead. Left for dead. And he ends up in Egypt. And he ends up being the means through which God saves his people, including his brothers, his whole family. And at the end, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, it's okay. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
You thought you were destroying me? You thought you were killing me? But God was using your sinful actions to actually further his purposes and to save you. Church, that's the God we worship. And then we see the same thing happening in in the book of Acts. The very first sermon that we hear in this book that we've been studying together, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the Apostle Peter stands up and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You thought you were putting an end to Jesus. You criminals crucified him with lawless hands. And yet, the death of Jesus was intended and planned by God from all eternity. You were merely accomplishing his purposes to save the world. Church, that's what we see happening. What we learn from these stories, what we learn from God's ways that He has revealed to us in His Word is that adversity and hardship is not a sign of God's anger. It's not a sign of God's rejection of His people. But often, adversity and suffering and hardship is the very means that God uses to accomplish His purposes. We grow in this way. The church grows in this way. The gospel is proclaimed in this way. We see it over and over again, and we see it in our passage. Last week, we we studied Acts chapter 7. We saw Stephen unjustly stoned because he was proclaiming a message that offended people. Because he was telling people that the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. He was telling Jewish people, you don't need to go to a brick and mortar temple anymore to meet God because in Jesus you have access to God right now. And that offended them. He was telling people like you and I, your works do not get you anywhere. There's nothing you can do to earn this. You can't deserve it. You can't work your way into the kingdom. It is by grace alone. You come through Jesus, and that is the only way. And that offended people. It still offends people. And so they stoned him. They killed him. So we don't have to hear this anymore. We'll put it down. And that opens up a whole new policy. And that's the first thing I want us to see in verses 1 through 4. God always wins. And no, Dan, you don't have to come play that VBS song right now, but we'd love to hear it sometime soon. God always wins. Look, look with me in verse 1. And so Saul, remember Saul was there, and they laid, they laid everything down at his feet. He approved of it all. He approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so this is a new thing. We have killed Stephen, and we are now going to go about by force eliminating this threat. We are going to blot it out, and Saul approves of it. And all the way through, we see that there's a series of causes happening. The death of Stephen, 
leads to more persecution, which leads to the church having to be scattered in verse 10. They are scattered. Remember, at this time, the only church was in Jerusalem. The only church in existence was the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. They didn't call it that, but that's okay. I mean, you might as well today. That's what they were. And so from that moment, they have to leave Jerusalem. They have to go to these other regions. They go to Judea. They go to Samaria, except for the apostles. That's an important point to me. The apostles are still in Jerusalem, but the church is being scattered. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. He was a holy man. Of course, they're going to make lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is intense. And Saul's the leader of it. But I want you to look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Do you see that? I love it. We are going to take it and we're going to blot this Christian movement out by force. And so we persecute them. They are forced to leave. But as they leave, guess what? They take the gospel with them. Have you ever tried to kill a dandelion? Yeah, what happens, right? You get your weed eater and you're like, yeah. And then the next week, there's like thousands of them. And that's exactly the effect, right? We are going to blot it out. We are going to persecute them. And they leave and they go out. And all you're doing is you're spreading it everywhere. Because God can't be stopped. Because when you persecute a Christian, you are persecuting someone who has the power of God living in them, and they take the gospel with them wherever they go. I'm doing historical research, and I know some of y'all roll your eyes when I talk, talk to you about my historical research. I know I'm a nerd. But I'm, I'm reading about Baptists in Virginia in, in before the revolution and, and the, the Anglican establishment, these Baptists would preach and they would imprison them and they would take them and put them in jail and these Baptist ministers would preach the gospel through the windows of their jail cells and crowds would gather around to hear them. And you better believe it legitimized their message when they were willing to preach through the prison bars so that other people could be saved and know the truth. You can't stop this. It just keeps spreading. But I want you to notice something. Notice where they, they go in verse 2. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, Hold your spot here and just flip back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I want to remind you, this is how Acts starts. Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Go back to 8.2. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The gospel at this point had been limited in Jerusalem, but now 
they are taking it exactly where God had always planned for them to take it. This was always God's plan. Eugene Peterson, in his message translation of the Bible, translates this, that they were forced to leave home base. The Christians all became missionaries. <laughs> That's what's going on. They, they had no idea that this was how God was going to accomplish his purposes, but the persecution is the very means through which he's going to do it. Church, listen to me. God is always leading his people. Do you believe that? He's never not leading his church. He's always leading his people. But I want you to notice how he's leading them here. There's no dream. There's no vision. God doesn't show up to the church in some angel voice or, or, or in the clouds or in a dream or a vision. He doesn't say, now I need you to go to Judea and Samaria. That's not what he does. It's, it's through history. It's through what we would call the doctrine of God's providence. And you may not be familiar with that. So I want to just give you a little definition of it. That's actually in a, in a confession that, that, that we're going to be hopefully adopting the Second London Confession of Faith. This is what God's providence is. If you've never heard of this before, this is really important. God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. What does that mean? It means that every single thing in history ultimately is going to serve the purpose of God's will being accomplished. That God in His infinite power and wisdom has somehow arranged it so that even when you make all these mistakes in it, it still turns out... It's, I always use this illustration. I hope it doesn't embarrass my wife anymore. But one time when we first got married, she'll tell me later if it did, when we first got married, I had delegated the checkbook to her. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's a very important thing. And so I said, hey, can you just take care of, of the, the finances and making sure we got enough money and everything? And I remember, like, checking it one day and, like, kind of going through all of, the, all of her calculations and realizing she had made a few mistakes, and, and so I get all the way to the bottom, and, and I fix the mistakes, and somehow, through, all, through the mistakes she had made, she had somehow re-corrected herself in the checkbook. Like, her mistake up here had been, like, fixed by another mistake down here, so much so that it equaled the right balance. And I've always thought about that when I think about God's providence. Because here we are making all these mistakes. Here we are doing all of these things that we shouldn't be doing and failing to do things that we should be doing. But at the end of the day, somehow, our sovereign God is going to make it end at the right balance. 
And that's what providence is. And that's how God leads his people. Listen, church, the reality of God's providence means for us that you need to just simply focus on being faithful wherever God has placed you. Because if God is leading you providentially, there are no accidents in your life. It means that you right now, this very moment, you are exactly where God wants you to be. And he wants you, listen, if you are a believer in Christ, he wants you to be faithful right where you are. You don't have to escape to be faithful. You don't have to move. You don't have to change to be faithful. You can be faithful right here where God's placed you. And there's assurance here. There's there's so much assurance. There's so much confidence that we should gain by this that we, we should live with confidence because we recognize, church, that nothing can stop his purposes. As the nations rage and plot to overthrow everything that he's trying to do, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It can't happen. I remember this is our second church plant from Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington. The first one was in Madison County, and I helped a lot initially. In fact, I was the, for about a a few months, I was the one preaching there almost every Sunday. And I remember uh, right after Pastor Jeremy had moved out there, after months of laboring there, in fact, I think we were into multiple years at this point, we had finally gotten to a solid core of families where you were like, all right, there's some families coming now. I think we're ready. I think we're about, we're going to make it. We're going to, we're going to survive. There's actually more than, than, uh, than us, you know, us and some college students. And I remember one week, a couple of those new families got upset about something. I don't even remember what it was. To be honest with you, all I remember is that I thought it was petty. And they left. And they said, hey, we're out of here. We're not going to be around for this anymore. And I remember thinking at that moment, this isn't going to work. <laughs> this is going to fail. This, we, we, from all calculations, this can't happen. Like, we had some families. We were feeling good. Now they're gone. We're starting over again. We've been trying to reach people in this community. We haven't been reaching people. And I, I texted Pastor Jeremy this week. said, how many people have been coming there every week? He says, eh, right now, at least 400 people gather here to worship Jesus every Sunday. And I think back on things like that because it's a good reminder to me that when it looks like we're failing, that's not necessarily the way God sees it. Sometimes God is doing things that we can't even comprehend and you won't even know until after it's all over. Maybe five, ten years later when you're able to look back on it and you're able to say, oh, now I see what God was doing. But in the midst of it, church, we, we have to train ourselves to trust that He is in charge. We have to train our hearts to just keep believing that He, he, he will always win. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't see the way out. I don't see a way of escape, but I can promise you it's going to work because God works all things for the good of His people, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
One of the things that this passage teaches us is that we've got to stop looking at hardship and suffering as a hindrance. In the economy of God, comfort and ease are often bigger hindrances than hardship and suffering. Because in the economy of God, we recognize that often comfort and ease lead us to complacency. We don't live with the priorities that God wants us to live with, but, but often we need the hardship to remind us of what really matters. What's really important. And we see that here. The second thing I want us to see in verses 5-25 through 25 is that God wins by changing hearts. So they go about preaching the word, and then the text in verse 5 focuses us on a particular church member by the name of Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And we hear that. We know Samaria was a region right outside of Jerusalem. And so we read that and we think, okay, that's like if I said to you, you know, Joe went to Indiana and preached the gospel there. You'd be like, great, good job, Joe, Indiana. We want those people to know Jesus too. But that's not what what you would have heard if you would have heard that Philip went to Samaria. (laughs) It's not the same thing as Joe went to Indiana. (laughs) You see, in 732 B.C., Assyria had invaded Israel, and they had taken over this whole region, and the, the, the section known as Samaria had been populated by Assyrians, and they had intermarried with Jewish people. And the result of all that was that they rejected the temple in Jerusalem and they built their own temple and then they took the word of God, Thomas Jefferson style, and kind of cut out the parts that they didn't like anymore. So the part of the Old Testament scriptures, they go, we're not going to be a part of that. We're no longer uh, purely Jewish people. We have now intermarried with other people that practice other religions and all that's been mixed into our religion now. And on top of all of that, We don't go to your temple anymore. We've got our own temple now. And so what you had was that the Jewish people looked at the Samaritan people and said those are not just heretics, but they are impure heretics. So that is where Philip ends up going. You remember, just for a sense of this, you remember Jesus when he goes to the woman at the well in John 4, that she was a woman of Samaria. You remember that? And he asked her for a drink of water, and she's shocked. She says, how could you, a Jew, ask a drink of water from me? Because you understood. She understood the cultural dynamics there. You don't ask water from somebody like me. And so Philip goes there. He went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. The gospels preached. The gospels being demonstrated. There's people being healed. So there was much joy in that city. But listen, it's not just joy because people are getting better. There's a deeper kind of joy flip over to verse 12 but when they believed philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of god in the name of jesus christ they were baptized both men and women verse 14 
Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There's a lot going on right here. <laughs> Probably want me to explain it now. So, Here's the thing. The first thing to be shocked by is that Samaritans are believing the gospel. The second thing to be shocked by is that Philip and the apostles, as Jewish people, are okay with it. We'll get to the reasons why here in just a moment. The third thing that seems strange is that they believe the gospel, they're baptized, but for some reason they don't get the Holy Spirit, which seems to be weird. It is weird. In fact, I think it's weird to Luke as he writes this. I think that's the reason it's included here. When Peter preached in chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe the gospel, demonstrating that faith through baptism, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Well, they have repented and believed and have been baptized, but they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit and so Philip has to call the apostles from Jerusalem to come and lay hands on them so that they will receive the Holy Spirit later. Now many people have read this and thought that the Holy Spirit, therefore, is another act that comes out after salvation at a later time. I don't think that's what's being taught here one moment. What's happening is that this is the very first time that the gospel has gone out of Jerusalem. And even so, it has not just gone outside of Jerusalem. It has come to the Samaritans. And the reason why they're not given the Holy Spirit until the apostles come is because the church needed apostolic authority to validate that what's happening is from God. Because nobody would have believed it. And they come and they lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit so that the whole church, including us, would know that it is God's design for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. So that's what they're doing. Now put yourself in Philip's shoes for a moment. He's probably been taught his whole entire life to hate these people. I don't know about you, but that's really not hard for me to imagine. I grew up in a context way down south where I was taught to hate certain groups of people. Now, it wasn't like a sit down and have a class on how to hate people. It was more in the attitudes and the unspoken things and some of the terms that were used. You know, you don't have to really teach somebody if you just sort of act it out in front of them all the time. And so what do we learn? I mean, you, you may have grown up in a context like that too. And it, it might not even be racial. It often is. It may be that you, you, you hate this group of people or that group of people. I think these days we're taught to hate political enemies, aren't we? If you don't vote like me, I hate you. I'm angry at you. I'm better than you. But Philip takes the gospel to these people. And what we learn, church, is that Jesus doesn't just save us. Jesus changes us. He transforms our hearts. When you come to know Jesus, 
attitudes of racism, attitudes of superiority, attitudes of discrimination have to be crucified. Because when we come to Jesus, we recognize that we are sinners and we deserve the wrath of God. We are no better than anybody else. And if God can save a sinner like me, you better believe he can save anybody, even those people that I've been taught to hate my whole life. I don't know how else to say it, but to say it like this. There is no room for any, any kind of racism in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ever. If you, listen, if you come to church and you say, I don't want to be around those people, you are not living out the ethics of the gospel, the logic of the gospel. You are living out the ethics of hell. It is in hell where people don't want to be around other people because they're not like them. Jesus is changing all of that. The gospel is revolutionizing all of that. The gospel is unifying us around the cross. By changing our hearts, one sinner at a time. Now interestingly, and we kind of skipped this part, there was one person there named Simon. Look at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So imagine like David Copperfield roaming around the countryside, and there's all these people like, follow him around, right? Only when we look at David Copperfield, we're like, okay, those are tricks. Those are illusions. But they look at this guy, and they're like, this is magic. He's doing something supernatural. So this guy was very popular. He was seen as very powerful. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. He's a celebrity. But look at verse 13. When the gospel starts going out, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so we go, what? E even the, the magician recognizes that the power of God is greater than his power, and he believes? But then we learn a really hard lesson very quickly. We learn church, and this is a lesson that I've not yet been able to learn. I've not yet gotten comfortable with it. We learn that not everybody who starts out following Jesus is really following Jesus. That appearances aren't always what's happening on the inside. And we know that because in verse 18, when he sees the apostles come and lay hands on the believers and that they received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, he sees that in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
I want some of that. I want that power. I will give you money if you will give me that power because I don't know what's in his heart. But, but I think what's in his heart is that he recognizes Jesus not as his Savior. He doesn't look here to Jesus and say, I want Jesus, but he looks to Jesus and he says, I want what Jesus can give me. I want the power. And Peter recognizes it. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. Gall was bitter drink, the bitterness of bitterness. And in the bond of iniquity, you are enslaved to your sin. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Church, I do not believe that verse 24 is his vindication. He simply asked to be prayed for so that judgment would not come upon him. He's not yet repenting and putting his faith in Jesus. We don't know the end of the story. But at this point, the text indicates that Peter does not consider him a believer, a true, genuine follower of Jesus, even though he had expressed faith earlier and even been baptized. His actions later on proved that he was not looking to Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was looking to Jesus as a means to an end. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Church, this is always a danger. It's great that we're all here on Sunday morning, right? But we could all be here, and we could all be here for a whole lot of reasons, and not all of them are necessarily right. This is a danger in every age. It is possible to be motivated the same way Simon was. It is possible to see Jesus as a means to an end and not as the end of all. It is possible to maybe think that Jesus will fix your life. You know, maybe, Jesus, if I come to you, you will make everything in my life the way it's supposed to, do, to be. Maybe, Jesus, if I come to you, you will finally give me the success that I want. Maybe, Jesus, if I come to you, you will make my children be the way I want them to be. You'll make my wife or my husband be the way that I want him or her to be. And if that's the way you think about Jesus, listen to me. There is going to eventually come a day where Jesus is going to ask for your loyalty. And you are going to recognize that Jesus is not a genie in a bottle, but He's a King that you bow down to and worship and obey. And on that day, you're going to be found out. And you're going to realize that your ideas about what it looks like for Jesus to fix your life are not the same as God's. And my prayer is if you're here today and that's you, my prayer is that you today would repent and come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. Because I promise you, the ways of Jesus are better than your ways. 
He is not the means to an end of fixing your life. He has a much better plan for your life than you would have ever dreamed up. The pathway is not going to look the way you planned it. But it will lead you to flourishing. God changes. He wins by changing hearts. But finally, He, he wins by breaking down barriers. And this last section... I'm going to summarize. It's, it's Philip again. And Philip gets a dream and he says, you need to go to this place, this desert in Gaza, and, and you're going to find somebody there. And so Philip obeys it. And he goes there and he finds a guy from Ethiopia, Ethiopia in Africa, another Gentile. Remember that the gospel and God's plan was going to go to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are now getting to the end of the earth. We are going out even beyond Samaria to even more shocking locations. But he finds an Ethiopian eunuch there. Now a eunuch is, is, is a someone who had fixed themselves so that they could be devoted to the queen or, or devoted, and that's what's happening here. He's an Ethiopian government official who had made himself a eunuch so that he could be devoted to the queen of his country and not be distracted. And there's a whole lot of questions I don't know about this guy. I don't know how he got here. I don't know how he found out about the book of Isaiah. But when Philip finds him, he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah and he's reading this passage in Isaiah 53, verse 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And he looks at Philip and he says, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And so Philip says, great question. That's about Jesus. Let me tell you who the lamb, who the sheep led to the slaughter was. The lamb that was silent before its shear, who opened not his mouth, who endured humiliation, after justice was denied him. Let me tell you how Jesus went to the cross and died for the sins of the world. Let me tell you how you can be saved if you will repent and believe the gospel today. Because Jesus was not just dying for the sins of the people in Jerusalem. Jesus was dying for the sins of the entire world, including Ethiopian eunuchs like yourself. And if you will repent and believe the gospel today, you can be saved too. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. There's a pool of water right there. Let's go get wet. And I promise you, it was a full immersion. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. The first Ethiopian Christian. Now listen, I want to say a couple things. Real quick. First one. A lot of people use this passage as a proof text for people who really don't like church and don't like accountability because this seems to justify just kind of Christians floating around out there looking for people and baptizing them in their swimming pools. That is not what's happening here. 
Philip is under the accountability of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. He has been scattered because of persecution. He is also under the authority of the apostles because he's already called them to come and lay hands on, on the, the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. His ministry is submitted to the church, but we are also looking at a frontier context where there were no churches outside of Jerusalem. So you're going to have to baptize people beyond the church so that you can make a church. And so that's what's going on. This is not normative. Listen to me. In the design of God in the New Testament, we see it all over. It is the church who baptizes. Now, that doesn't mean I have to baptize you. That doesn't mean it has to be inside a church. The church can baptize anywhere. Church can baptize at the ocean. But God has designed the church to be the keepers of the keys of the kingdom. That's important. But more important in this context is, listen, it is amazing how God providentially continues to take the gospel where he wants it to go. And in this case, he's bringing the nations to Philip. That happens sometimes. You get a call. Hey, we've got refugee families from Afghanistan that are moving in your neighborhood. Will your church be willing to minister to them? Oh, uh, Yeah. Because God in His infinite wisdom is bringing the nations to us. Listen, I, I did ministry in, at the University of Kentucky through Ashland Avenue Baptist Church for a decade. And, and the nations, you, we would have students, mainly students, coming from China by the hundreds each year. And I can't tell you how many times a student came to Lexington, Kentucky for education and had no idea that in the providence of God, he had brought them there to hear the gospel so that they could go back to China as baptized believers of Jesus Christ. But that's what God does. Because there's no limits to, there's no borders, there's nothing that keeps God out. God is going to do it. Do you believe that, church? I hope you believe it. Because when we get to the end of the Bible, everybody gathers around the throne and they begin to sing a song. And this is the song that we're all going to sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Church, that's the end of the story. That's what God's doing. We have the opportunity to be a part of that now. He is reaching people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We are called to help in this process now. And my prayer is that we would be faithful. Let's pray together. Father,